So Rabbi Mordechai Becher tells a story, a personal story, which you sometimes wonder if they actually happened there because he's just funny. And he, so he tells about the time he was staying for Shabbos in a hotel and they put him up on the 11th floor. So uh, he tried to avoid having to go downstairs as much as he can, but I guess he was there to speak somewhere and he had to come down and then he, uh, he had to make his way back up the stairs to the 11th story of the hotel. And uh, he's, he's staggering his way up the stairs and uh, around the 10th floor, he's in the stairwell, he's, he encounters a staff person of the hotel in the stairwell and, uh, and the staff member sees him and he says, what are, what are you doing? Why didn't you just take the elevator? So he wheezing and huffing and puffing and all red and sweaty and everything. He says, well, uh, today is the Jewish Sabbath. It's my day of rest. So, uh, so that story um, does beg the question of uh, why can't he just take the elevator? You know, what... Uh, if, if, if in fact the uh, Shabbos is a is a day of rest, so why don't we? Uh, why are we so stringent about things? Why uh, why are there so many prohibitions? What is really the the goal here of the of the rest that we have on Shabbos? Now we have spoken. Of course, we've given some ideas already that relate to this, but we've also spoken about the idea of there being Zachor and Shamar. Zachor, remember the Shabbos being the positive commandments and, uh, and the Shamor, guard the Shabbos, referring perhaps to the prohibitions, according to many. So uh, all the, 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 the prohibited acts, the Melachos, as we call them, and as we'll, we'll discuss more. So, so I saw a uh, cute... Uh, Acute muscle, acute analogy in the name of the Vilna Gaon, although it doesn't seem like his style, so I'm not sure, but uh, that uh, to understand this, this concept a little bit, or really to, to introduce the concept, he, he says uh, that uh, there was once a child who, uh, who they wanted to test him with a riddle. And, uh, and the riddle was... This is, this is a different child and different riddle than, than last night, Robert. Um, the riddle was, um, um, well, well, they said, that before they told him the riddle, he said, uh, you know, what's my prize if I, uh, if I answer the riddle? So they said, we'll give you two cookies if you answer the riddle. So he's like, okay. So, so what was the riddle? So they said, how is it possible for two people to each be the uncle of the other one at the same time. So, so, so two men and they're each each other's uncles. So the boy thought for a moment and uh, you could think about it and see if you could figure out the answer. The boy thought for a moment and he said, well, if you have, um, you know, usually when we say you have Ruvain being one person and, uh, and Shimon. And uh, so if Ruvain and Shimon are brothers, so then, Shimon's son and Ruvain, Ruvain would be Shimon's son's uncle. So, so there's one. So they said, very good. Okay, 
Now, uh, now tell us the other way, though. How could uh, how could Shimon now be Ruvain's uncle? How could the son be 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 the the uncle of the of the uncle? So he said, "I'm not sure, but I got half the answer. Can, so can I have one of the two cookies?" <clears throat> so so said the Vilna Gaon that uh, you know you can't have. You can't have one of the two cookies. You can't have one without the other. You need both. And, uh, and similarly, when, uh, when the Torah says, Zachar and Shamar, remember the Shabbos and guard it. So, uh, so you need both. And that's why they were bidibor echa. That's why they were said at the same moment simultaneously, as we discussed in a previous class, because you can't have one without the other. Shabbos is not only about remembering the Shabbos about Zachar, it's not only about Shamor guarding the Shabbos, the prohibitions of Shabbos, but they go together and one without the other is not a complete answer. It's not a complete Shabbos. So, uh, you know, and you can't, you don't get either, either of the cookies if you don't have both. So, uh, so let's talk a bit about this, the Shamor side of things, the guard the Shabbos, the prohibitions, the idea of refraining from Milacha. And uh, milacha is a word that really needs to be explained what that is. So let's look for a moment, if you have the source sheet, otherwise just listen on, to uh, the, the Ten Commandments, um, the first place where we re- really have an explicit command about Shabbos. Actually, not really the first place, but uh, the, the first place where we have an explicit command about milacha, about refraining from milacha. And uh, and there it says, Remember the Shabbos to sanctify it. For six days you shall do work. And do all of your melacha. Do all of your melacha. Melacha, again, needs to be explained what it is. Labor, work, maybe neither of those. Constructive activity is probably going to be a better uh, definition. But the seventh day, the Yom Ashvi Shabbat slash Emelokecha. The seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord, your God. Lo sasekol melacha. You shall not perform any melacha. Find you and, and your entire family. So, uh, so here we have the way the uh, prohibition, the negative prohibitions of Shabbos are expressed are that you can do melacha all week long. On Shabbos, you cannot do melacha. So what is this melacha? What is it? Was it? What is it not? So, uh, so we're going to be mainly focusing on the writings of Rav Hirsch, Rav Shamshin Raphael Hirsch. We touched on it briefly last week. His general concept of melacha. I want to, uh, you know, really focusing on it, discuss it at greater length. So, um, just to understand the historical context uh, of 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 the 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 setting that Rav Hirsch found himself in. Rav Hirsch lived in Germany, um, where the reform movement was was uh, expanding rapidly. Um, people were were quickly, um, you know, abandoning many many Jewish practices, and uh, and Rav Hirsch um, came into Rav Hirsch was a very very novel thinker amazing writer and he wrote in German all the everything that we have is is translated um, but was uh, 
was very careful about keeping the tradition while still finding a way to to function in the sort of enlightened German society, which was uh, which existed in the in the 1800s when he when he lived. So uh, so Reversto was was faced with uh, with the challenge of 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 bringing Jews back to observance of, of Shabbos and other, and, and other commandments. And, uh, and he says, and I, I, I put some excerpts onto the source sheet and some, some left out. Um, so I'll let you know once I'm reading from the source sheet. But Rav Hirsch tells us, Rav Hirsch writes in his commentary on Flemish, and I should just note, Rav Hirsch wrote in many different ways. He, he wrote a commentary on the Torah, which is what I'm drawing from primarily, he wrote down uh, essays or speeches that he gave, um, which you could, which are collected, the collected writings. So there's writings about Shabbos there. He wrote a book about all the mitzvos and sort of the ideas behind them called Chorev. And, uh, you know, there also he'll talk about Shabbos. And, and you'll see a lot of overlap of the same perspectives. These were his, his views. And he writes that the, the, the idea of Shabbos has become distorted by the and undermined by the mistranslation of the word melacha as work as labor. When people say thou shall not work do any work on Shabbos, so uh, so people think that that simply means you know don't go to work, take the day off from work, um, and then you have uh, fulfilled the the commandment of Shabbos and uh, and. It's much more than that, though. So now picking up on the source sheet, he writes, without having the slightest concern whether there was any foundation for it in the Torah or whether such an interpretation was even permitted by the Torah, Sabbath was proclaimed as a day of bodily rest so that the mind might be freer to devote itself to God in spiritual matters. So it's interesting, actually. Some writers um, from, from his time, and, and, and you see this in the writings of the Kassav Sofer, um, where numerous times he has he is challenging the idea, the notion that Shabbos is simply a day of rest because everybody needs to rest every seven days or so. It's too much, you know, to to keep working. He has to challenge that idea. Rav Hirsch at least is a, is challenging idea that's a little past that. He's not arguing against people claiming that it's simply a day of rest. No, he's he's arguing with people who are a little bit more, uh, you know, a, a, ahead of that. It's a day of rest to be able to devote oneself to spiritual matters. But that's what it is. Why do we rest on Shabbos? In order to devote ourselves to spiritual matters. This is the idea that people are claiming and rehearse is challenging. Shabbos is the purpose of, of rest on Shabbos is not just to be available to attend synagogue, attend shul, and pursue spiritual matters. He says, prohibited malafka was then accordingly defined as labor, hard physical work. Only hard physical work, they said, is prohibited on Sabbath. But easy, non-strenuous work or work undertaking for spiritual activities is allowed. If the purpose is to, to, to be able to, to pursue my spiritual activities, to attend synagogue or whatever it might be, so then it's allowed because the whole purpose, they said, of resting on Shabbos is to, is A, to rest from physical activity and B, to be able to pursue spiritual matters. So as long as that what I'm doing doesn't get in the way of that. 
even if I'm cooking on Shabbos, but if it's for a, uh, you know, a Shabbos meal, so then people would say it's okay because it's for the purpose of a, of a Shabbos meal. But this is a mistake. Um, he says, and so the adjustment of the lot, the requirements of life was accomplished, meaning they took the, the Torah and kind of molded it to as fit their, their lives rather than adjusting our life to fit the, 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 the Torah. But he says, but nowhere in the Torah is there the slightest suggestion that the cessation of Amalatha is not in itself the realization of the essential nature of, of Sabbath. That this cessation should simply serve as a means. To say that we rest, that we seize Melacha on Shabbos in order to be able to pursue spiritual matters, in order to have more time for our family, in order to be able to recover, right? That's saying the cessation is just a means to an end and not an end in itself. It doesn't have meaning in itself. But he says there's nothing that suggests that. Everywhere by cessation of melacha, and in it is Sabbath kept. Wherever the Torah talks about how do you keep Shabbos? By not doing melacha. That's how you do it. That's what Shabbos is, refraining from melacha. Everywhere in the Torah, by doing melacha, and in it is Sabbath desecrated. How does one desecrate Sabbath? By doing melacha. Everywhere. That's always how it's described in the Torah. The, it's, it's, that's the, the linchpin. It's all dependent on, on, on melacha. Equally so, he continues, the idea of melacha in no wise, great translation, no wise necessarily entails the idea of strenuous physical labor. Nowhere do we see that the word melacha means labor, hard work, etc. It occurs nearly 200 times in the scriptures, and in no single instance does the word itself indicate strenuous work, just as the slave work in Egypt is never called melacha. Right? We, we, we never find the, what they did in Egypt described as melacha. But everywhere, the essential idea of the word melacha seems to be, as indeed its etymological derivation from malach has told us, that should say malach, not malacha, has told us, and we'll, we'll discuss what he means in a moment, not the greater or lesser amount of bodily fatigue, nothing to do with how much uh, effort and strain and fatigue is involved, but the intelligent carrying out of an intention. What is a melacha? He's saying a melacha, what the Torah prohibits is the intentional carrying out of an intention so that even if we knew nothing of the oral traditional explanation, of course he's saying we have an oral tradition that uh, relates the melachos, uh, the, these, these, these prohibited acts to the mishkan and, and, uh, and teaches us what they are, what the 39 are, and we could see that they're, in general, constructive acts um, and not necessarily strenuous. But, uh, but even without that, he says, simply from the actual meaning of the word and from the hundredfold evidence of the way it is used in the Bible, we should say that you shall not perform any melacha means thou shalt not perform any constructive work. It's clear from the word and from the from context, that it means constructive work. Thou shalt not carry out the intention on anything, make no thing the bearer of thy purpose, thy ideas. In general, thou shalt not produce, not, not construct, or nor construct, maybe. So, 
So that's what it is. It's the performance of constructive work. And, uh, and then he says, it shall not carry out thy intention on anything. Now that's, he's already getting into his etymological idea of the word milacha. And this is something he, he talks about in a number of places, but he elaborates on it the most in Beratius, in Genesis chapter 2, where we first encounter the word melacha. And there it's not talking about the prohibition of melacha on Shabbos, but it's talking about God's completion of, of the world. And it says there, and that's the next source, it says, God completed on the seventh day, his melacha. God completed his melacha. So the creation of the world is God's melacha. And it says he abstained on the seventh day from all his melacha that he did. And then it says he blessed the seventh day, for thereon he abstained from all his melacha. So God used melacha to create the world. And, uh, and on the seventh day, he abstained from melacha. And it's that which melacha that we are to abstain from as well. So what is the idea of melacha? What, what is the etymological idea? Rav Hirsch alluded to the relationship between the, between the word malach, which is an angel usually, but really a messenger, an agent, and, uh, and the word melacha. So this is what Rav Hirsch says in Horatius chapter 2. Um, everything which God created is called his melacha, right? It says God created, God completed on the seventh day, his melacha. Melacha is not work looked on as labor or toil. Of course, God doesn't labor or toil to create the world. But melacha is work looked on as something done or accomplished. Working is a term which only looks on the labor, on the greater or lesser effort of an activity without consideration of the result or the product. Avoda. Avoda is working. Working is the process the, uh, with no concern for whether there's a result or not. Melacha only considers the result, the product of the activity. You can't have melacha if you don't produce something, right? And this is true within the laws of Shabbos as well. If, uh, if uh, it's, it's the completion of the act that, uh, that is the transgression. If it's only an attempted act, for example, if uh, let's say somebody puts something on the stove to cook on Shabbos and they take it off before it cooks. So they have not transgressed the biblical prohibition of cooking because it never actually Cook now. Maybe it's still rabbinically prohibited to do that. It's even biblically prohibited to put it there because, assuming it ends up leading to the result, but it's only if the result is there that the biblical prohibition is is transgressed. It's melacha is result oriented, but melacha is simply the feminine of malach. He says malach. Again, we are familiar with the word malach as an angel, but it really means a messenger. What malach is personally. Melacha is factually. Just as Malach, a messenger, is the bearer and executor of the thought and intention of another, 
So melacha is a thing which has become a bearing exterior of the thought and intention of a mind. So he says, what is a, a malach? What's an, uh, an angel? An angel is, a, is an agent of God, a messenger of God. It's the bearer and executor of God's intention. Um, a melacha is when we take the material world and form it to become and, and allow it to execute our intent, our thought. Every material, he says, to which a directing mind has given a form conforming to a definite purpose, by being given that form becomes the milacha of that mind, its actual messenger. It serves as the bearer of the thought and intention of that mind. For example, willow twigs lie there. As such, they can be used for all sorts of purposes. I weave them into a basket. Now the twigs serve exclusively for the purpose I gave them by the form into which I made them. So that the twigs which I wove into the basket have become thereby my actual malach, my malacha. They become my agent, so to speak. They, the, the materials are, are carrying out my will to become what I want them to become. To become, when, they, when I construct, when I take the raw materials of the world and I construct them into something, um, so then they, or I, Take a st- or I, I I take a significant step in their uh, in their ability to become something because some of them allow hope like to plant let's say you know I didn't immediately make something constructive but something constructive will will come from that eventually so uh, so he says that is that is melacha melacha is where I have an intent and I and I turn the materials of this world into to, to bear that intent, my intention into something factual, something physical. And just to conclude, to go back to, uh, to discussing in the context of God and creating the world, he says all that exists is here called the melacha of God, right? Because it says that God completed melachto, his, his melacha. It is not only in itself by its existence, the realization of a thought of God, but it goes on continuously being the bearer and realizer of the thought of God that had been implanted in it and of which it is to be the realization. The amount of material and forces given to each and the form into which it is stamped makes everything into a milacha of God. Meaning all of existence is the realization of God's thought, the realization of God's intent, and, uh, and therefore in a certain sense God's messenger in the world um, and uh, and that's why it is called milacha. So that's the etymological uh, root of the idea of, of milacha being something something that is uh, was was formed with with purpose with intent to be my to be my messenger in the in the physical world. Um, and we find this in the laws of. Shabbos, again, there's there's biblical laws, there's rabbinic laws, but on the biblical level, at least, for a uh, for a melacha to be transgressed, so first of all, it has to be constructive, productive, um, and not uh, destructive. It can't be kill cool, destructive. So uh, so if I tear something to shreds, then uh, and I destroy it, that's not a a, a transgression. Um, on a Torah level, um, if I if I 
tear something carefully to a specific size, so that may be a transgression. Um, if I tear something with the intent to then sew it back together, and so my my destruction is really constructive. I'm tearing it to be able to to re-sew it so that it's better. So that's considered constructive. That's not destructive. That's constructive. So again, to, to for for a biblical melacha um, to be transgressed, it has to be constructive. It has to be intentional. It has to be that I intended for this result. If it's if it's if I if it happened without me intending to do it, that's not melacha. Melacha is where my my I intended for this thing to become what it is to, and uh, and so it has to be intentional, um, and. Uh, Okay, and there's other uh, other little details that also tie into this, but that's the the basic idea of a malacha is an intentional, productive, constructive act, and uh, and there are specific intentional, constructive acts that we that the the sages have taught us, and those are derived, like we've said in the past, from the building of the mishkan. From the building of the tabernacle. Now, okay. Now, one idea that we, you know, so so still, so what, what, why, you know, why, what is the message? Why are we uh, prohibited from melacha on Shabbos? So. What we mentioned briefly last week from Rav Hirsch, and this is his, his main uh, uh, idea with regards to, to Melacha on Shabbos, is that God has given us this world to be the masters over it, to use it for our purposes, um, but ultimately for his purposes. The, the, the reason that uh, that God puts us here is to take the material world and use it in his service. The ultimate expression of that is the building of the Mishkan, is the building of the tabernacle and the temples. And uh, and the the uh, really that's the the ideal almost of taking all the all of our skills, all of our talents and all of the physical materials that exist and using them for a uh, for a godly purpose and using them to create this abode for God in this world which uh, which is supposed to teach us and remind us that uh, all our all our acts should be for that intent to serve God but every week we need a reminder of this every seventh day every Shabbos, God says, I need to remind you that that which I've made you a master over the physical world is only so that you can use it for me. And and so every seventh day, we're reminded that we're not really the masters over it because God says, I'm really the master over it because I'm going to tell you to take a break. I'm going to tell you to stop, to seize from all these constructive activities, all these, all these acts that demonstrate mastery of the world, that demonstrate our ability to take the world and construct something out of it, to make something, to change it in a constructive way, 
though that's how we demonstrate our mastery of the world. But once a week, God says, pause, put a pause on that. And, uh, and remind yourself that it's really all for me. It's all for me. And the way we're reminded of that is when God says, stop. If you look at the next source, so we're on page two in the middle. So this is in Shemos chapter 35. So Rav Hirsch says, if we look into all these categories, they all have the common quality of being actual constructive or productive activities. So he actually had just listed off the, uh, the 39, the 39 prohibited acts, um, constructive activities, just to briefly list some of them or all of them. Sowing, plowing, cutting, gathering, threshing, winnowing, um, separating, grinding, sieving, kneading, baking, shearing, washing, bleaching, combing, dyeing, coloring, spinning. Some of these are, are just different ways of saying the same thing. Chain making, loop making, weaving, splitting threads, knotting, undoing such knots, sewing, tearing, in order to sew more, hunting, killing, flaying, tanning, salting. Drawing lines, smoothing, cutting, writing, rubbing, um, erasing, meaning building, demolishing, to build more, kindling fire, extinguishing fire, and finishing off something, and finally carrying from one domain to another. So, uh, so Rav Hirsch says that if we look into all these categories, or almost all of them, they have the common quality of being actual constructive or productive activities such by which the object becomes changed and by the intentional work accomplished. Man's power and mastery over matter is demonstrated. We make a change in something. We demonstrate our mastery over the world by initiating a change in it. Hence, refraining from exercising this power on, on, on Sabbath is a befitting manner of showing man's allegiance to the one only true master and creator, to man in his, in his mastery over matter and apparently creative powers is only a leaseholder, a servant. All those creative powers, we are just um, leaseholders. We are servants of God. And, uh, and by pausing, that's what, what demonstrates that. Even the gathering together and heaping up. So now he's really asking a question. He's saying, one second. Some of these do not involve any change in the item itself. So for example gathering together um, um, like different crops, let's say. So the gathering together and heaping up of the products of the soil. Or if you trap an animal and it's inside the trap, but it's not changed at all. It's just in a box now. So you haven't done any physical change. How does that demonstrate your mastery? He says, even the gathering together and heaping up of the product, the soil, and the catching of a wild animal or fish, although the fruit or the animal is not changed in itself, brings about such an essential change in bringing it out of the free state of nature into the control and power of human possession. That these X2 fall under the same basic idea as the others. So maybe I'm not making a, a physical change, but the, the change is, is substantial in that it previously was in nature and outside of my possession, and now I'm bringing it into, into human possession, I'm demonstrating my mastery, you know, trapping an animal is demonstrating my mastery over it. And it's, and uh, even if I haven't actually altered the animal, I could set it free, it will be the same uh, as it was uh, before. But uh, 
but it still is a way of demonstrating my mastering. It's that, that I submit to God on Shabbos. But the one thing that stands out that still needs to be explained is the final melacha, what's listed as the last of the 39 melachos, and that is carrying. That is bringing something from one domain to another. So the Torah prohibits us from carrying something from a public domain into a private domain, from a private domain into a public domain, and it also prohibits us from carrying something four cubits, four amos, six feet or so, in the public domain. So picking something up and moving it four amos, four cubits in the public domain. Now this doesn't seem to demonstrate my mastery over the world. No change ha- occurs within the object. Some will say, well, the change that occurs is it changes location. That may be true, but what? where do I see a change in the object that uh, that it's that it's considered a malacha. It's considered a malacha. Nothing actually changes. The truth is the sages already were concerned to bother by this. They call it a malacha gerua, like a weaker malacha. There's something lesser about it, um, which may lead to some small leniencies, but that's the general principle. Now, in practice, this uh, this specific malacha um, is... Uh, you know, the, the, the rabbinic law that exists on top of the biblical law, because it's so easy, I guess, to, to transgress. So there's a lot of uh, a lot of rabbinic law built on top of the biblical law. So what would uh, be considered a public domain by Torah law, um, the rabbis expanded to, to many other types of domains, which are kind of semi-public, semi-private, um, to include those domains. Um, that's where we really get the concept of an Eruv, which allows one to carry in one of those domains, the Eruv will never allow one to carry in a real public domain. Um, a real public domain, again, it has to be like, you know, where many, many people travel and, uh, and, uh, and the other certain specific, uh, specific guidelines, a real public domain, an Eruv is not going to help uh, to allow one to carry. What Where the Eruv comes in is in a, in those semi-public domains, which the rabbis prohibited carrying in or from a private domain to, there the rabbis also said, but if you do an Eruv, so then you're allowed to, to carry. And how an Eruv works exactly is topic for another time, but that's just a little bit of the, of the background. But we still have our question. What is the story with carrying? How does this fit into the general concept, the general um, categorization of all these malachos as some kind of constructive change with something that demonstrates my mastery over it. How does this fit in? So Rav Hirsch has a very novel approach to this whole question and basically carves out an entirely new category of malacha that uh, this prohibition falls under, the prohibition of carrying. And he points us to, first to some verses at the end of the book of Nehemiah, um, where uh, where this this uh, this prohibition seems to have been uh, you know slightly abused in uh, in Israel as they were um, rebuilding and after the building of the second temple and and the those are not the verses that I put on the on the page. We'll get to those verses in a moment. 
in in Nehemia, um, Nehemia says, um, he says, in those days I saw in Judea people treading wine presses on the Sabbath. So that's uh, may involve a couple of prohibitions to to squeeze the grapes on Shabbos, um, and then loading them on donkeys and also wine, grapes, and figs and all types of lords, and bring them to Jerusalem on the Sabbath day. And I warned them on the day. Um, so they were selling them, and they were they were you know, full desecration of of Shabbos and carrying them as well. And uh, and he said, Nehemiah says that you know what is this that I I quarreled with them, and I said what is this bad thing that you are doing profaning the Sabbath day? Did not your ancestors do this? Um, and our God brought upon us all this calamity upon the city, and you are increasing the wrath upon Israel by profaning the Sabbath, um, etc. So already there we have that uh, there's people violating this, and Nehemiah is very concerned. He says this is what caused the uh, profaning the Sabbath, is what caused the destruction of the first temple, is really what he seems to be saying. Now if we go to the verses I put on the source sheet, a series of verses in Yermia and Jeremiah, so, um, so this is what the prophet Yermia had to say during the time of the, of the first temple. And he says, so said the Lord to me, go and stand in the gate of the children of the people in which the kings of Judah come and out of which they go and in all the gates of Jerusalem. And you shall say to them, hearken to the word of the Lord, O kings of Judah and all of Judah and all the inhabitants of Jerusalem who come into these gates. So said the Lord. Beware for your souls and carry no burden on the Sabbath day, nor bring into the gates of Jerusalem. He says, beware for your souls. Do not carry. Do not transgress the prohibition of carrying on Shabbos. Neither shall you take a burden out of your houses on the Sabbath day, nor shall you perform any labor. Um, Melacha, right? um, and you shall hallow the Sabbath day as I commanded your forefathers. But they did not hearken, neither did they bend their ears, and they hearkened their nape, not to hearken and not to receive instruction. Um, and it shall be, if you hearken to me, says the Lord, not to bring any burden to get to the city on the Sabbath day, and to howl on the Sabbath day, not to perform any labor thereon. Then shall there enter into the gates of the city kings and princes sitting on David's throne, riding in chariots and with horses. Then the princes, the men of Judah, and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and this city shall be inhabited forever. And they shall come from the cities of Judah and from the environs of Jerusalem and from the land of Benjamin, etc. They'll bring offerings. And verse 27, if you will not hearken to me to hallow the Sabbath day and, to, and not to carry burdens and to come into the gates of Jerusalem on the Sabbath, I will kindle a fire in your gates and I will consume the palaces of Jerusalem and it will not be quenched. So God warns through his prophet Yermiah, Jeremiah, that the this the the city of Jerusalem is dependent on the observance of Shabbos. If you guard the Shabbos, it will uh, it will stand forever. And if not, then it will be destroyed. But if you notice, there's two, two things he warns of over and over again. Don't do melacha and don't carry. Don't carry and don't do melacha over and over again. As if there's the, the carrying which up till now we may have always thought was just another one of the 39 malachos. It sounds like it's its own category. It's not one of the malachos, or it's a different kind of malacha. So Rav Hirsch says, based on this, that uh, 
that we see that carrying does not seem to be integral, a part of the general prohibition of Malachos. It seems to be its own category. So let's see why, how he explains it. And this is on the last page, page three. He says, but carrying is an affair purely of the social world. The whole idea of social life, of living not isolated, but in a community, in a state, cannot be represented more fully than by the relation of the individual to the community, the community to the individual, meaning what the individual has to give to the community, what the community gives and does for the individual. What the individual takes out of his own private possession and pays to the state, meaning to the community, and what he gets back for himself. And finally, the furthering of public purposes and needs in the public domain. So he says there's three parts to community. There's what an individual gives to the community. There's what the community gives to the, each individual. And then there's the furthering of public needs within the public space. This is most clearly expressed by carrying from the public domain to the private, from the private domain to the public, and four cubits in the public domain. The Torah says, I cannot carry from my domain into the public domain, symbolizing that the relationship, the mastery that I may have in, in the social world, in the community, in the state of what I contribute to the community, on Shabbos, I give that over to God. What the community gives to me is represented by me carrying from the public domain to the private domain. On Shabbos, I give that over to God. And in, uh, and within the public domain itself, what the, the, the needs of the public are attended to, public purposes, we cannot carry four amos, four cubits in the public domain. And he says, if accordingly the prohibition of all the other malachos expresses the idea that man subordinates the use of his powers over matter to the will of God, that's how we explain the other malachos, the prohibition of carrying may well express the idea of man placing his social life too under the dictates of the laws of God. The former is the acknowledgement of God in nature, the, the other malachos, the latter in history and human affairs. The one places man's work in nature and on matter under the rule of God, the other is work in the state, in the community, under the same rule. And as certain as it is that the conception of our world comprises both nature and state, so certain is it that God's mastery of the world includes both nature and history, and the establishment of the kingdom of God on earth to be built up by recognition of the Sabbath will only then be complete and real when man acknowledges and keeps the laws of God and making the rules for his own working life in connection with nature and matter and also his national life of the state. In other words, what Rehersh is saying is that we... We don't only submit and give over and acknowledge God's mastery over nature on Shabbos and say, yes, God, you've given me the ability to construct and be productive with the materials of the world. But I am reminding on Shabbos what I'm told to see is that that's all belongs to you. But you've also created a, a state and a community and a social life. And that, too, I need to give over to God. That also I, you know, I, I think that during the week I'm in control and, and I'm the master over it, but, but it all has to be in the context of service of God. And Shabbos has to remind me of that too. 
And the way I'm reminded of that on Shabbos is through the prohibition of carrying. Prohibition of carrying is all about the relationship of a person and the community and the community itself. Represented by not carrying from myself out to the community, out to the public domain, not bringing from the public domain into my own space, and not carrying within the public domain. That's the um, that's all the that's supposed to capture the the idea of community of the state of of the social fabric that I also acknowledge that it's all for the service of God. God should be master over it, and so I refrain and hold back on Shabbos. And just to conclude, Rav Hirsch says that these two ideas are also captured by the two ideas of Shabbos commemorating the creation of the world and Shabbos creating, commemorating the exodus from Egypt. In the creation of the world, that's, that's, that's nature. That's God's, uh, that's, that's God's mastery over the universe. And, uh, and we rest and acknowledge that, that God created everything. It's all his. It's all for the purpose of serving him. The exodus, Yitzhiyas Mitzrayim, the exodus from Egypt, was our becoming a nation, our becoming a state. Um, and, uh, and the prohibitions of, of carrying are to remind us that that too, as a, as a nation, as a community, is also to be devoted towards, uh, toward, towards God. It's all for the purpose of serving God. All that we do within a community, um, what we contribute, what we get back, what we build, the, uh, the, the institutions that we make, all are for this purpose, are all for the purpose of, of serving God. So, uh, so that's the uh, Rav Hirsch's view on Melacha. It's an essential part of Shabbos. It's an ending itself, meaning there's a message. It's not just that I'm resting for the purpose of being available now to do other things. The resting itself is a submission. I stop doing these things. It's a submission of my um, of my control uh, over these affairs in my life and in the world, submitting that to, to God, a weekly reminder that it's all for him. Okay. Thank you, Rabbi.